O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His wonders among all peoples. Of those beloved of God and called to be saints, grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a blessing to be with you in worship today. As uh, part of my family has been able to join you from Omaha. And uh, let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking his blessing on our worship service. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness in gathering us to be with you today, to offer you that which you desire, worship in spirit and in truth. May you fill each and every person here with your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that it's only by your grace, only by the indwelling of the Spirit that we can do that which we are commanded uh, to love you, to be united to Christ by faith to praise you, to learn about you, to grow in Christ-likeness. So may today be one step in that process of further dependence upon you, further seeing you for your glory, your goodness, your justice, your truth, your mercy. May we be edified and you be glorified in this gathering of your people today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let us move on to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Reading chapter 30, 11 through 20. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, and that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life, and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. God's word is holy and just and pure, again bringing conviction, but with conviction for us who are drawn to him in faith comes hope of forgiveness and mercy. To Romans chapter 1. I'll be uh, preaching just on a part of verse 1, but let me read verse 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called 
of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for this word uh, preserved for so many centuries that we today might come to it uh, with humility, uh, with a desire to learn and grow, with open hearts and minds uh, enlightened by your spirit through the power of illumination that we might understand it better and live by it. Uh, Please bless me in my preaching that I would not stray into the wisdom of man, but would be uh, teaching and encouraging your people according to your wisdom, O Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. It's been about two months, I think, and as you can see, we're still slowly making progress through Romans. I want to emphasize today on the one word, apostle. But as a preface to that, just a little bit of catch-up. It was back in July that we looked at calling, uh, and we've been making our way one step at a time. As the words here go in due course, we learn first about Paul, saved from his sin, right? He was a sinner, just like we are, a bit more... uh, Exaggerated in some of his sins, a bit more dramatic conversion than many of us probably had, but still, there's commonalities with us. He was born in sin, he needed to be saved in God's gracious timing. He was, and he served God faithfully. May those be useful examples for us. And then how he served God faithfully. We see the next word, bondservant, otherwise translated as servant. What it means for Paul to be a servant, there were some unique aspects to his areas of service, But for us, as Christians, there is that universal requirement. Let's be honest, it's a requirement, it's an obligation, it's a joyful obligation to serve him. He is our master. We are not our own. And then, who it is that saved Paul from his sin? Who it is that uh, Paul served uh, in his servant capacity? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw in that so many examples of very obvious, you know, we think, how could somebody deny the truth of the scriptures, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the divine Messiah? So there's plenty of evidence for us to lean on and to be encouraged by as we acknowledge that Paul did not serve some human master, he did not serve some strong man in his age, he served the Lord, the Lord God of all eternity, trying God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then last time, uh, called, uh, Paul did not take this on of his own interest, right? Calling means responding to somebody else inviting you, and exercising that authority over you. And that's what Jesus uh, did in calling Paul to be an apostle. So that's what he was called to. Broadly speaking, called into the Christian life, a little more narrowly called into Christian service, a little more narrowly even than that, called into apostleship. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to focus today looking briefly at the specific meaning of the word apostle, as has been our habit in this study. You know, what is the, the technical term would be lexical meaning? What does the dictionary say about this word? But of course, any word in the Bible can take on unique usage and a whole cultural and theological context as we look at how the word is used. So we'll start with the plain meaning and move into the contextual, as well as what it means for Paul to be an apostle, and then for us. <coughs> as you'll see shortly, and as you will really already know, you're not an apostle. None of us are going to be apostles, capital A. And I say that with a bit of a smirk, because there are, of course, denominations that do claim there is modern apostleship. So we don't want to totally think it's a crazy idea, uh, It's partly crazy, uh, but there are people who hold to it. And with all due respect, we want to look at the scriptures. 
what do the scriptures say as to why that is a partly crazy idea? Why it is we don't have uh, apostleship as one of the offices, either in my denomination or in the RCUS. And there's good scriptural reasons why we don't. But just because there aren't any capital A, a apostles today doesn't mean it has no relevance to us, right? And as we'll see, and if you scanned your outline already, you can see where I'm headed. There are very real impacts for our lives in terms of our apostleness. So we're not apostles. There's no apostleship, but there is apostleness. So bear with me as we get to that. But the key point, uh, as I've written there in italics and top end of your outline, God did a tremendous work in getting a hold of Paul and working in him a powerful ministry. That's what we know as his apostolic ministry. And it impacted the whole world. But let us see how that impacts us, not just in the letters he wrote, the scriptures we study, but in the lessons and the uh, burden we have in our apostleness. Amen? All right. Well, let's get going first, again, with the meaning of the word. Uh, the word there is apostolos in the Greek. Uh, at its most basic level, it merely refers to one sent by another. Uh, we might use the common word messenger, so bearing a message. But it can be not just a message, but just a task. You're doing something on behalf of. So apostle refers to one sent by another with a specific task. Uh, if it is a task of carrying a message, then the message they carried was essential and really wrapped up in that task. There uh, has an overlap there. So hence we come to the usual meaning of the message bearer or messenger. But note here, a slight technical detail, don't want to get too lost in the weeds, but in the Greek text here, uh, the word in Romans 1, apostolos, lacks the article. So it's Paul's servant of Jesus Christ called to be apostle, not called to be the apostle or an apostle. That's what we would in grammatical terms call an anarthus form. It lacks the article. And generally what that lends by way of shade of meaning is that it's emphasizing the character, the traits of the person. Not so much the work, though obviously one who manifests these traits then does that work, but there is an emphasis on the character, the messengerness, as well as the messenger. Right? One who preaches, that's emphasizing the proclamation. Uh, but here, the messenger, it's emphasizing the, the traits, the qualities of that person. So it indicates an emphasis on the attributes of the apostles, not so much a strict emphasis on the person uh, or even on the office. And that's one thing I do want to distinguish as we get to our applications. There's apostleness and then there's the office of apostle. Paul uh, was called to the office of apostle, were not. And so here, even in the Greek form, we see that there's an emphasis on the attributes, the qualities. And it's those attributes and qualities that are enduring, whereas the office is not. So stated again, the foundational meaning of the word apostle, apostolos, especially as it's in the form here without the article, speaks to the attributes, the character of the one doing the task. And that task, of course, is bearing a message. But there is, and I don't want to overlook this, make you think that I'm totally ignoring the fact that there is an office of apostle in view. Uh, verse 5 has a slightly different form of the word, and we understand that to be office. And it's rightly translated there, apostleship. 
And there's dozens of uses in the New Testament where we can rightly understand that it's referring to the select group of men who had a unique responsibility in the first century in that founding era of the New Testament church, something that's not going to be repeated. And there's some text there in your outlines you can follow up later, uh, either if you want to do more personal study or to communicate it to friends of yours who are a little bit less convinced that apostleship has ceased. But just to refer to one of them, it's Ephesians 4, Verse 11, where we read that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, right? They're all given for the building up of the church. So somebody, and this is a common answer among our, I'll respectfully say brothers, in other church traditions that do believe in continuing apostleship, they say, hey, look at the list there. It doesn't have a verse break. It doesn't have any, you know, uh, character return to put them on a separate line, so why would we, Reformed people, separate those offices? Well, the other verses I put in the outline show that the apostles were part of the foundation, right? You don't build a foundation two times. You're putting up a house, you lay a foundation once, with one cornerstone, by the way, which is Jesus Christ. You don't have multiple cornerstones, so we're not looking for a new uh, founder of the church. We don't have multiple foundations, uh, and if somebody says, well, you need to like shore up the foundation in each generation. Well, no, God is able to build a house. He even says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, right? The church is enduring. The church is not going to fall away like the Mormons say and have to be restarted. It is permanent, and it will endure, and there's only one foundation. There is not continuing apostleship. But let's look uh, at a few examples of how the word apostolos is used in other places in Scripture. One, uh, John 13, 16. And I'll just read these, uh, and the notes are in your outlines if you want to follow up later. But it's John 13, verse 16, where we read, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So it's the word sent there, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. That's the word apostle. Right, so this is emphasizing, again, that quality, that attribute of being sent. Sentness, if you would permit. Uh, and this was part of Jesus' conversation with his disciples as he washed their feet. So he's explaining what is the character that he requires of these disciples. And it's in verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Followed by verse 16. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So for our purposes, again, looking at the character, the attributes of this messengerness, we see that a messenger, an apostle, is a sent one. And secondly, he is sent by someone, right? That verse I just read from John 13 clearly shows that Jesus is doing the sending. But first, stepping back, we see that in general, a sent one is sent by somebody. Uh, just like calling, as I referred to in the opening summary, somebody doesn't call themselves. Also, somebody doesn't send themselves. Instructive example, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Reading there for the quick page turners. Uh, verse 23. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 23. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers... That's our word, apostolos, of the churches, the glory of Christ. So here, Paul is giving an explanation of the, who these people were. You can think of critics saying, who are you guys? Who are you? Why is he here? Why are you exercising authority over us? So he's giving a bit of an answer. They are messengers. 
in this case, messengers of the churches or apostles of the churches. Those specific congregations had sent men as message bearers, as ambassadors. They sent Titus on this journey. Another example, I won't uh, uh, flip there for you, but to Philippians uh, 2.25, and where Epaphroditus is called your messenger. So he's a messenger, he's an apostle of the church in Philippi. So thus far we see the essential role of an apostle is bearing a message. Uh, the emphasis is on the attributes, the character of that essential to performing that task is being sent. We see they're sent by various people, might be sent by a church. Ultimately speaking, it's God who sends. And that's what we come to now in point D, sent by God, messenger of God, right? A proper biblical apostle is sent by God. Even if they're sent by a church, it's through God's uh, direction, uh, through God's uh, hand being upon them. And this specifically speaks of what I referred to already as the capital A apostles, right? The office of apostleship. So Hebrews 3.1 speaks of Jesus as an apostle. Uh, that's a unique category, sent by God the Father, delighting to do God's will. Uh, his food was to do the will of him who sent him. But Paul, uh, in his greeting that begins the letters of Timothy, uh, Colossians, expre- expressly states that his apostleship is of God. So not just of a congregation, but of God. In one example, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Timothy, the greeting there in 1 1. 2 Timothy, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then Colossians 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he was an apostle, and I can't emphasize it enough, not by his own decision, not exercising his own authority, also not by the what might appear to be the human authority of some church, he is asserting it is by the authority of none other than God in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And that apostleship was committed to him directly. And if you recall, it's been several months, but you're no doubt familiar with the story, when Paul, and so it was in the the Paul sermon that we covered this, but in Paul giving testimony, whether it be to civil authorities or to the Jewish authorities, he always looked back to God's direct calling. Jesus speaking to him on the road to Damascus and then uh, through the insight uh, given that encounter with Ananias at the house. So it was not the authority of man. It was the direct authority of God. Coming to this last point, uh, point E, uh, again, looking at the attributes, the character, and the meaning of being an apostle. So one additional aspect of this, which is unique to the case of God's apostles, is that it comes first in the order of gifts or offices, right? This is unique. This is special in terms of the apostolic office. In both 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, that's where we have the lists. And it's in those lists that the apostles come first before prophets and other ministry gifts or functions or roles. Uh, Sadly, uh, history records men envying for these positions, right? Some of the epistles or some portions of some of the epistles are specifically addressing those who were trying to assert. They were trying to get themselves into those positions of unique authority. And the answer is that they were imposters. They were false and they were deceitful. They tried to place themselves there. And no doubt the people today would say, oh, I'm, I'm... not trying to force myself into that list. God has put me into that list. But for other exegetical reasons, we would say, well, 
That's just simply not possible. That office has ceased. People aren't in that place anymore. But even in the time of the historical record, or the uh, biblical historical record, we see people trying to get themselves into those positions, inappropriately so. But properly, it is God that called the apostles. It is he who placed them first in rank, and it is unique to this founding era of the church. That's as it is, according to God's design for the establishment and then the ongoing governance of the church. Uh, Evil men, and speaking of those that uh, Paul and other apostles rebuke in scripture, evil men try to take authority to themselves, try to expand their authority, try to push out other godly men. May it not be so in our churches. So, by way of summary of this section, uh, I want us to be super clear uh, that the underlying meaning we're working with is simply a sense one. Built upon that is the beautiful meaning as it comes to light through the work of especially Paul, but other apostles also. He sent on behalf of the sender with specific orders and adds to that in different cases. Uh, It depends on who the sender is, uh, what the tasks are, what the message is that they are bearing. And, of course, along with the fact of the capital A, so to speak. And as uh, one of the lexicons defines it, the apostle surpassed various other orders of Christian teachers. So all Christians, as we'll get to eventually, don't want to jump the gun a little too much, but all Christians are apostles in that we're sent. We have a message, a beautiful message, to share with our neighbors and family members. But the specific office of apostle, as Mr. Thayer says, surpassed various other orders of Christian teachers. And it's a beautiful thing. It's uh, one reason why we have the scriptures as we do. But moving on, a little more biographically, a little more focused to how it is that Paul manifested his work as an apostle. And I've hinted at some of this already, but to uh, rehash it and then add a little more detail. First, we see that God commissioned Paul, right? We must emphasize this. He makes a big point of it in his biographical information, and it's worthwhile that we do too. A vital uh, and inherent feature of apostleness is being sent, the sending, not sending yourself, but being sent by another. An apostle does not go of their own will, does not choose his own destination, and does not carry his own message. Uh, God's word is very clear to tell us that Paul did not invent his own calling. God called him to be an apostle. And I cited some evidence of that from first and second, uh, oh, sorry, First, Second Timothy, as well as Colossians, but uh, bears repeating. Let uh, me quote some other examples. Romans one one, where we are here. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. It doesn't say Paul, who thought it would be a good task to use his ingrained skills to go do something for God. Right? It doesn't say that. It says Paul, a servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle. And then First Corinthians one, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through whose will? Through his own, through his neighbors, through his assertive wives? No, through God's <coughs> will. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, and this is the inspired parentheses, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So, with all those and many other edifying examples, Paul's sentness, uh, his apostling, was not by his own personal desire. It was not through any man. It was not through a group of men. It was 
from God. And let's get into some of the uh, unique aspects of this calling, of his calling to apostleship. And 1 Corinthians 9, if you want to turn there, uh, beginning at verse 1, and this is part, uh, and there are many examples, where Paul is taking the time to answer the questions against his authority. Right, And if it was the case that, oh, because I'm so skilled or because I had such good training, therefore I can be in the office, this certainly would be the place, among others, where he would have explained it. But that's not the answer he gives. So when there are uh, people questioning his authority, wondering why and uh, trying to tear down or at least uh, bring others into place alongside him to lessen his authority, he answers in uh, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 9, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? So that's what he's leaning on as the basis for his authority. I've called to be an apostle. I've seen the risen Lord. So it's understood that witnessing Jesus' resurrection was essential for the apostolic office. It's one of the qualifications, as we would say it. Paul, though, was not part of the band of disciples that was in, say, the upper room, or that meant him on the road to Emmaus. Uh, he was, by his own explanation, as one born out of time. But his emphasis on this bears further testimony to the fact that it still was an essential qualification. He's not saying, oh, I, I get a, a free pass on that because of some exception. He's saying, no, the qualification stands, and God did a unique work to find me and to uh, bear witness of his resurrection to me. God went out of his way to get this done for Paul. And it's uh, further in 1 Corinthians, at chapter 15, verse 8, where Paul explains to that troubled church uh, some absolutely essential facts of Christian belief. Among them, Jesus died for our sins, and he rose again. There were uh, and had to be valid witnesses to his resurrection. And he again cites himself as one of these witnesses. So I'll read verses 3 through 8 of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of time. And so he is making absolutely clear that, yes, this qualification for an apostle, capital A, the office of having seen the risen Savior, is valid. And it applies to him, too. He's not giving himself a pass. He includes himself among those who did see the risen Lord and therefore are qualified to be apostles. And then it's in his uh, testimony with uh, Agrippa in Acts 26 where he repeats this. So whether it's to Jewish authorities or to uh, Christian brothers or to uh, the civil magistrate, he's willing to state these facts, the qualifications for apostle. So to wrap this section up, Paul was commissioned by God. Uh, he was uniquely commissioned by God. Right? God went out of his way uh, to bear witness to the truth of his calling. And he was commissioned with a specific task. And that specific task is mentioned several places. And it is to bear witness to the Gentiles. Right? But reading Acts 16 verse 17 is but one example of that. So again, I want to lead you along this path of seeing what is 
apostle sent this, right? They must be called of God. That happened with Paul, and they're sent with a specific message, a specific action, and for Paul, that was to the Gentiles. So in Acts 16, 17, he says, uh, recounting what he was told, the, the biblical author does, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. From that very first encounter, the establishment of his apostolic calling, it was known to Paul that he was being sent to the Gentiles. So he was sent to teach them so that they might, just like anyone else, repent, believe, be saved, be sanctified citizens of the kingdom of God. There are other examples that could be added, some of which I've listed in your outlines. Clearly Paul was a sent man and he was sent to the Gentiles. Well now we come to what is the significance of apostleship for us? I've already stated that we can't be capital A apostles and that's not a bad thing. That's actually a very good thing. We don't need to be feeling that, oh, Ephesians 4.11 has been shortened, we're lacking, you know, we're needing something more, like a premillennialist would say, we need Jesus' real physical presence with, here, with us if the church is going to be successful. No, God knows what we need, and at the time of the ascension, he said he would send us what we would need, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we're not lacking for anything in that regard. We're not lacking for anything in that we don't have apostles and prophets, which are the first two offices stated there in Ephesians 4. They fulfilled their role. Apostles founding the church, prophets proclaiming scripture that God has been faithful to preserve for us. So then still, what is the usefulness of the word apostle, of apostleness, as I've turned it for us? So certainly apostolic work is important. It's a hugely significant task. And Paul was unquestionably called by God to do this work among the Gentiles. But what can we learn from this? If we're not apostles, we are not eyewitnesses to Jesus' bodily resurrection. And if the apostolic office has ceased, what's the usefulness for us going forward, other than the founding of the church, uh, the writing of these scriptures? So, while it is very true that there is no capital A apostleship anymore, despite claims from some churches in our day. The foundation of the church was built, and having been built, it continues. And apostleness is real and can be, should be, needs to be happening in our lives. And let me try and piece this together for you from the scriptures, as you'll see in your outlines there under uh, 3b. So bear with me as we uh, build this together. So earlier I read Ephesians 4.11, Referred to it a few times. That's the list of offices. And why are they put there? I didn't exactly word it, I don't think. Maybe it slipped out by way of memorization. But let's get to the purpose of why those offices uh, were ever created. Why they happened and why some of them continue. So they teach us, in, or God teaches us in those verses of Ephesians 4, why those offices were given. So reading Ephesians 4, 12 through 15. I've already read 11 earlier, but now for 12, 15. These apostles are for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. 
This is us, right? We are the saints that are in the church, that are being equipped for ministry, etc. The apostles and prophets did their work, especially including the founding of the church and the prophets, the authoritative uh, teaching, which is God's word, the Bible. This ministry, though, to edify the church until we have the unity of faith and knowledge of Son is ongoing. Right? Do we have unity of the faith in our day? No, sadly. Praise God you're gathering with the OPC congregation in a couple of Lord's Days. There's a lot of overlap between the RCUS and the OPC, and that's great. And so there is some unity, but not total unity. Right? Is there knowledge of God covering the earth as the waters cover the seabeds? That's what the Psalms say is going to happen. Has that happened yet? No. There's a lot more teaching, a lot more knowing of God that needs to happen. So we're still in this era of expansion of the gospel, of learning about God, of people knowing, learning in their hearts, not just intellectually. So we're still in this time period of the equipping for the ministry, of the growing in Christ-likeness. And therefore, these offices, and again, their attributes, right, their characters continue, not the office themselves, because as we see in other scriptures, apostleship has ceased, but the characters and the attributes do continue. So until we see a church fully matured in Christ, or one that is childlike, sorry, matured past childlikeness and fully stable in God's word, we still have a need for these maturing um, uh, tools, pastoral preaching, counseling, shepherding of the flock by elders, as well as growing God's word as it's proclaimed by the prophets and people going out being sent, as I'll get to. But notice the last line, verse 15. So in contrast to these uh, uh, evil tools whereby the church is being uh, torn down or impaired, in its maturing, in contrast to that, which is verse 14, we have the positives, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, growing up in all things. That is a restatement of what Paul says earlier there in Ephesians 4 of the goal, of the trajectory of the church now, speaking the truth in love, growing up in all things. And it's this that gives us a clue, the next step, as I'm piecing this together for us, in 2 Corinthians 5. So to tie this together, if you want to turn with me, you may. 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll read verses 14 and 15. We read there, The love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. He died for all, that is Jesus. All those who shall live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the love of Christ is what compels the us of Paul's statement here. In Ephesians 4, it's speaking the truth in love that we grow up into Christ. So Paul was saying he did not do this to receive man's approval or attention. Instead, the love of God compelled him. God loved him. God died for him. That produced in him love back to Christ. Love forced Urged. That's the meaning of the words there. Like somebody's pushing you from behind. You can think of the little child who doesn't want to do the you know, Christmas show up on the stage and mommy's saying, you've got to go. That's the urging. That's that forcing that is happening in the Christian's life. And what is it? Not mother's hand at your back. The love of God compels, urges us. Paul had done many things as a dead man. 
right? He hunted down Christians and was somewhat successful in hauling them into prison. He did that as a dead man. How much more would he do as he was alive in Christ with the love of God compelling him? So friends, if you are a Christian, then Christ's love in you is, can, should, will be more compelling in urging you on to love and good works. Love toward Christ should similarly stir us up and his work in each of our lives should similarly urge us on in our own ministry. So friends, as Christians, we should not live for ourselves, as Paul and others had earlier, but we instead should be living unto Jesus to minister in his name. And it is, again, the love of God inwardly. It shouldn't be social compulsion. It shouldn't be pride. All these things are really easy to uh, creep in, and they can mimic the real thing pretty closely, sometimes produce equal outside results. But the genuine thing is when the love of God on the inside compels us and urges us on. Well, further on, uh, in that passage of uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, another key phrase pops up about this ministry we do as uh, manifesting the apostleness. So if you uh, continue on to verses 18 and 19, Paul writes, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So remember it's in Ephesians 4, that list of offices. What's the purpose of those offices? To help mature the saints in them doing the work of the ministry. Well, here in 2 Corinthians 5, we have another statement of that ministry that the love of God compels Paul, compels us to do, and it's stated here as the ministry of reconciliation. And I think Paul very quickly thought, oh, people are going to wonder what I mean by ministry of reconciliation. (laughs) And so then he defines it in verse 19. That is that Christ was in God reconciling the world to himself. That's the work of reconciliation. God ultimately does it, right? We can't get a person saved. We can't uh, satisfy God's wrath on their behalf. We can only tell them what God has done. And that is our part in the ministry of reconciliation. So recall that it was in uh, Acts 26. This is one of the occasions where Paul was explaining his biographical details. Essential detail of that was God's calling. He was told, my role is to go to the nations that they may receive forgiveness of sins and saving faith. That's the message of reconciliation. Repent and believe. Be reconciled to God. That is the ministry of reconciliation that Paul was called to. It's what he told the civil magistrates about. It's what he told the Christian churches about. It's what he told new people he talked to in different regions of Asia. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, we read that the world is to be reconciled to God. It only happens when people repent and believe. Paul did that as an apostle with a unique scope of responsibilities and we may say unique effectiveness in that capital A apostolic office. But we do that as saints. One last thing here before we leave 2 Corinthians 5 uh, is at verse 20 uh, where we read, we are ambassadors for Christ. Coming back all the way to the beginning of the sermon as I was defining the word, you might recall, and I kind of let it slip in there, I believe. When we talk about messengers, another way we often think of messengers is as an ambassador, right? Within the government, 
federal government, we have ambassadors to England and Zaire and whatever. They carry with them that authority of their home nation. And so they are kind of an outpost uh, in that other land. And they have the authority to act on behalf of the one who sent them. And uh, biblically speaking, uh, ambassadorship is very similar. Uh, There's a lot of overlap in the etymological... um, Well, there are etymological differences, but the usage of the terms is very similar. So there are some theological differences, but there is a lot of overlap between ambassadors and apostles. And we can see in our common usage, and, uh, at the very least, I hope it would be a useful for you trying to conceive, what, are, what am I supposed to do in my apostleness? Oh, okay, well, there's that idea of being an ambassador. We all are ambassadors for Christ, right? When you're in your workplace, in your family, in school, meeting somebody on the bus, you wear a badge, <laughs> you have a hat on. Uh, sometimes you can do it literally. It strikes up conversations if people can see uh, that you are a Christian. And I think, because uh, on our van we have a scripture written back there, it makes me drive better on the interstate, right? I don't want to accidentally cut somebody off or be speeding because I'm not paying attention and I don't have cruise control. And then somebody sees, all oh, those Christians, because I'm clearly labeled as such on, on the back. So when we bear uh, public witness as Christians, as ambassadors, we are representing him to the world. And that can be a very powerful opportunity. I do want to give one caution, unless you think I'm going a little bit uh, beyond the scope of Scripture. So I will acknowledge that the we of 2 Corinthians 5.20, in where it says we are ambassadors, strictly speaking, I do believe that that is uh, Paul and Timothy. Uh, so the, P, the, the we that was speaking to the Corinthian church uh, is who the we is there. Just because a biblical author says we, and, you know, uh, hey, I'm reading this, and I live in 2000 later, 2000 years later, we can't exactly put ourselves uh, into that. But there is, by way of application, the fact, again, as Christians, as saints, as those who are being equipped for ministry, we have some ambassadorness. We do have this calling for a ministry of uh, reconciliation, uh, some calling for a ministry as an ambassador. So the principles, and this is what I want to emphasize, the principles of ambassadorship, the principles of apostleship can be applied to us. While you and I certainly don't have the same gifts working in us as there was in Paul or the other apostles of his day, we are saints being equipped for ministry. This ministry is a beautiful one. It's an impossible one in the flesh. But with God, all things are possible. With Christ dwelling in us, we can and should and will accomplish this ministry in his name. It's a beautiful ministry to see men brought out of darkness into light, to be forgiven of their sins, to repent and believe and be baptized, to join solid churches, to be taught all that Christ has commanded. You see echoes there of the Great Commission. It's great because it is a manifestation of God's greatness of his glory, and a world that is dying but for the work of Christ among us. This is the ministry of Ephesians 4. It's the ministry of 2 Corinthians 5. It's the ministry of capital A apostles and ambassadors. It's the ministry of lowercase a apostles and ambassadors. It's the ministry, brothers and sisters, of every Christian. That's the challenge. I give that challenge to myself as well. So I do hope that this has been an encouragement to you. I don't want 
Paul's apostleship, as unique and amazing as it was to be put on a pedestal, rightly admired, there's a degree to which we can rightly admire it, and then it'd be a discouragement to us because we feel disempowered, thinking, oh, that's not happening today, and wow, it is a beautiful thing, and I respect that, but it's kind of on the shelf. No, let us properly understand and appreciate the apostleship of Paul and then be empowered to how that works its way out in our lives today. Because remember that the same power at work in Paul is at work in you. In slightly different ways, to different offices, absolutely, but it's the same power. It is the power of the risen Christ. And the same love poured out in Paul's heart is poured out into ours. And so we, by his grace, can do similar things in his name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is enduring. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, O Lord, endures forever. Pray that you would give us uh, eyes to properly understand uh, how it is to be applied to us today. You did a wonderful and amazing work in the life of Paul so many centuries ago. Uh, We have uh, many words in the Bible to uh, bear witness of the fruit from that faithful ministry. But may they be living and active in our lives. May we, through in the encouragement of your word, through the indwelling of your spirit, be stirred up to love and good works. That we would see you working, working through us in our lives today. I pray this for each and every Christian in this congregation this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.